His name is Alexis Borsier. It's in the Criterion Collection! Since he was a child, he's been raised to consider pop culture as a fine art to be studied, dissected, analyzed, and debated. My name is Ben Spiro. My parents threw out my favorite stuffed Winnie the Pooh when I was away at preschool one day. Together, we're proud to present... Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure! Welcome to Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure, the show where two friends take a deep dive into the pop culture grab bag and hurl random implements of entertainment at one another with reckless abandon. Borsier, how you holding up? Always better to be on the outskirts of a party, don't you think? <laughs> I, uh, uh, yes, I do think that, and I'm glad you put into words the thought that I have all the time. So this week we're continuing the battle that I've been referring to as the cheesiest of all time. Last week, Borsier shared Godzilla Final Wars, which was some of the craziest shit I've ever had the opportunity to witness. I felt actual sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> when faced with that level of utter absurdity, it's it's important to come back with something equally inane. And uh, I feel that I've, I've done that with my offering, the 1975 cult Roger Corman film, Death Race 2000. Ben? Yes, my friend. What did you make me watch? Oh, poor C.A., old buddy, old pal. You see, it was back in the mid-1970s, and Roger Corman, famed pulp producer of Night of the Blood Beast, Bucket of Blood, Battle of Blood Island, and blood, 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 I made that last one up, he decided that he needed a dystopic science fiction sports film to compete with the James Conn vehicle Rollerball that was nearing release. He turned to a short story by obscure science fiction author Ib Melchior uh, to create the utter madness that would become Death Race 2000. It is a movie that somehow manages to feature both Sylvester Stallone and David Carradine, and it is truly a minor miracle of vehicular homicide that can only have come to being in the mid-70s. Uh, a worthy entrant, I say, to no other competition other than for the title of cheesiest of all time. We are in the far-flung future of the year 2000, and and you know it's the future for three reasons. One, there is a weird fist lightning bolt insignia on the flag now. Two, there is a bad matte painting. Three, the major sporting event, the transcontinental road race in which people are murdered for points, is being introduced the... Deacon of the Bipartisan Party is the MC for this sporting event, which apparently has has taken the world by storm, or at the very least, the American populace. I got questions about the point system in Death Race. <laughs> what what can I do? How, how can I help you? As best as I understand it, at some level, the speed with which they finish is a factor. Is it? Yes, <laughs> we know this because at some point they clarify that even if he comes in second, Sylvester Stallone could win on points. Mm-hmm. Are the points from the murders? Oh, oh yes. Okay. The points are definitely from murdering. Okay. That's what makes it a death race, my friend. That's what makes it a death race. Hey, anything can be a death race if you're bad at driving. Teenagers are 40 points. Toddlers and babies are 70 points. Anyone over 75 is 100 points. 
they never stated outright, but I get the feeling like men in the prime demographic are 20 points. They're not, they're not a lot. And then women in any of those categories, you add an extra 10 points. Okay, so it's a, it's a culling thing. Okay. I feel like maybe someone read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, but then got really distracted, and then she couldn't find a cab, so she had to come uptown, and then, ah, fuck it, whatever. I gotta say, the last time I was worried about what would happen to the sensei from Cobra Kai, (laughs) Rambo, and Kwai Cheng Kane, I had had a Terrible, terrible Middle Eastern meal, and I'm pretty sure I was still sleeping off some LSD. We, we've got David Carradine playing Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Frankenstein is held in awe by the populace in this movie. They, they adore him. He is one of the most famed racers of all time in the transcontinental road race, the only one to win twice. And one of the, the most important things about him is how he has survived so many crashes. And each time he's lost a little bit of himself that has been pieced back together. Or at least this is what the public thinks, that he lost most of his jaw in 92. <laughs> he lost his right eye in 95. He lost his nose and left eye in 97. Lost a leg and arm, most of his cranium in 98. Lost an arm and, a, uh, I guess, another leg in 99. And they've just reassembled him. He is Frankenstein. That is the, the theory behind him. And you you can kind of see a gross face barely visible under a weird plastic mask and a hood that is also his helmet. Of trivia note. Yeah, please. The costume was originally leather. But David Carradine is a vegan. <gasps> What? <laughs> oh, that explains the spandex then, because that is definitely a spandex costume. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. This is it. like, no, nope, we got to have some kind of leather alike, some kind of pleather. And it's like latex or something. And uh, that makes it comical and weird in a way that I don't think it would have been if it was leather. I think it still would have been stupid, but a different level of stupid than that weird vinyl costume he's in. It's it's definitely vinyl. It's definitely vinyl. It's something. It is something unnatural uh-huh. that doesn't f- that does not flatter the human form. It is one step above child's Darth Vader costume that you would get at a Halloween store. Yeah, it's. I don't even know that it's a step above that. And the cape is bad. Is the cape just so that they don't get sued by Speed Racer? It's a real cape. <laughs> If there's one thing that actually fails in this movie, and, you know, it's hard to say anything doesn't, but (laughs) Frankenstein looks ridiculous, and I don't understand why everyone takes him seriously. And I don't get from the movie at all why he would be famous or why anyone would pay attention to him. The race and the act of running people over is so important to the American people. And, and, and the fact that this man has done it successfully multiple times makes him nigh unto a god. That's just the thing we have to accept about, about Frankenstein in this universe. Yeah, I don't know what David Carradine's doing. I don't know what David Carradine's doing. And to say I don't know, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't even know. I, I'm watching it. 
and I'm trying to figure out if he's just phoning it in. He's not. He's occasionally trying some stuff. It's just... When he puts on the mask, I think he's doing literal his own Frankenstein. When the mask is off, I think he's trying to do something a little different and a little more relaxed and a little more lovable, but I don't think that comes off. I, I mean, I remember having this exact thought, just going, I no part of this guy seems famous, even in the universe of the movie. It just looks <laughs> like you're beating up David Carradine in a, in a gimp suit. I don't... This is sad and upsetting. I don't want you to do this anymore. It's really, if you don't buy that central conceit, there's not a lot left that the movie is going to have to give you. That That is kind of the keystone on the which this whole bridge is, is being held up by. And it sounds like that was a problem. <laughs> it, it was. It, it very much was. We have S Sylvester Stallone as Machine Gun Joe Viterbo. Machine Gun Joe. <laughs> I love him. Love him dearly. Can we just take a second to talk about Machine Gun Joe Viterbo and, and his truly impotent rage? Because Sylvester Stallone, I think, is doing the only really interesting things in this movie. Sylvester Stallone and David Carradine showed up as actors. Everybody else in this movie was not told anything about characters. <laughs> they just were told, here are the things you're saying. But none of the other characters barely have any character traits, really, so it's, I, can't, I can't blame them for that. But, but Machine Gun Joe is fascinating, and, and Stallone does something fascinating with him because he's so angry, so constantly enraged, and yet it is impossible to take him seriously watching the movie and for the characters inside the movie. Despite his anger and the ferocity of it, he is a joke, and that is awesome. Like, screaming at the violinists to stop playing music, and they just keep going. They keep going. And even when he smashes their violins, it's more like, well, okay. He's the only person who knows what movie he's in. And if they hadn't sucked, he'd have been great in it, you know? <laughs> it's as simple as that. You're like, oh yeah, you followed all the instructions you were given. Oh, they were terrible instructions. Oh my god. Right. All the direction but, of is, but you are doing it. <laughs> he is asked to punch his navigator Myra full on in the face in a fit of jealousy. And that is a sour, sour taste. But also, she doesn't stop making fun of him because of it. She, if anything, she just continues more. Oh, God, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's weird to say it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, that scene where he punches her in the face. But it's because you just go, ah, but it only works because, yeah, she's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she just keeps making fun of him. And, and, and he looks at her and says the single greatest line in the history of cinema. I don't think that's an exaggeration to say. He says, No, Myra, some people might think you're cute, but I think you're one very large baked potato. He calls her a very large baked potato, Borsier. <laughs> Stallone is showing up. He's making big choices. He is... <laughs> nobody else is at all. Maybe it's just a sign of where he was in his career. He's still new. He's still like, all right, well, I'm, I'm in this fucking movie. I'm in this, that's the Kung Fu guy. Why do I want to win this race in the name of hate? He's like, he just shouts that line. <laughs> also, his name is Viterbo, which I think is a good way to get the word turbo in there. No, that was good. 
That's really, like really good. It's... We have Martin Cove, otherwise known as John Kreese from The Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. And nothing else. Nothing else. <laughs> he plays Ray Nero the Hero Lonigan. And there's one more minor celebrity. She plays Calamity Jane. Her name is Mary Waranov. Have you have you heard of her before? I don't believe so. Okay, so so she was a member of Warhol's factory. Okay, that tracks. But she did become part of something that you might be aware of. But she was a fan of L.A. punk music, and she was in uh, a video that you are aware of. She in decline of Western civilization. Okay, so not not a movie, an actual music video for a punk song. Oh. Go ahead, tell me. Do you remember that when the singer from Suicidal Tendencies just wanted a Pepsi and his mom wouldn't give him one? Oh, dear. Calamity Jane was his mom who just wouldn't give him a Pepsi. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. The one we haven't mentioned yet, Matilda the Hun from Milwaukee and Herman the German. They drive the buzz bomb, and there is a lot of waving of Nazi flags. They are very Nazis. And then you go, wait, but this is 1974. There were Nazis like 30 years ago. They should still be worried about Nazis in this. And they are not worried about Nazis. The Nazi imagery played for puns? It's not like there is some grand evil ideology that she seems to represent. What she represents is that she has got a very specific costume. Yeah, like, I mean, she talks about the master race once or twice, but she's real casual about it in the same way that you might say, I prefer vanilla, but, you know, chocolate's fine. <laughs> but even then, even then she refers to, like, this competition's going to be won by a member of the master race, a woman. And, and that's the joke. She proposes that, because she hates Calamity Jane, that she's going to find the final solution to the cowgirl problem. I actually went, mm, while watching it, and it was Death Race 2000. I didn't go, mm, while watching, I don't know, Amistad. I mean, I did a little, but that that's just, you know, lesser Spielberg. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a boat. <laughs> she says, Mach schnell, meine kleine Buzzbomb. It, uh, it's not offensive because it endorses Nazism. It's offensive because it pulls the horror from Nazism and just like, hey, isn't this, isn't this fun? Look at these crazy krauts. <laughs> and like a lot of things that happen in this movie, I legitimately cannot tell you whether there is an attempt at satire that this is a society that thinks that this is okay, or that is a reflection of the society of the 1970s that just thought that that kind of thing was funny. Like, I don't know which one it is. I, I gotta say, I am a graduate of the oeuvre of Roger Corman. This is the most Roger Corman, Roger Corman film. See, this was my first entry, so this is always what I've understood that to be, and I really haven't dug much deeper than, than this movie. It's like someone boiled the apple <laughs> and then gave it to a filmmaker and said, you just got to assemble this so that it's a movie. When they don't know what they're doing, they just cut to something crazy happening. I don't know what's happening anymore. I don't know. Get me four buckets. Get me... 
a box of bananas, and the costumes from a Little Rascals movie. Boom! There you go. That's a scene. This movie opens up on director Paul Bartel. And that was the moment I realized what I was in for. Tell me about Paul Bartel, because I don't actually know much about him. He's one of the guys who came out of Roger Corman that kind of created indie cinema of the 80s and 90s. He made Eating Raul. And most recently, I remember him for playing the same character in Chopping Mall as he was playing in Eating Raul. Oh, uh, by the way, uh, Mary Warrenov was also in Eating Raul. That's she. I think she's the woman. She's the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really one of Corman's stable in a way that only, I don't know, Dick Miller is. <laughs> like, I don't think he ever made a movie for somebody else. So there's one other name, but it felt like a name that you would be familiar with. The cinematographer is Tak Fujimoto. Oh, Jesus Christ. He's one of the, yeah, that's rarefied air right there. Yeah, he's one of the five greatest cinematographers of all time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and here he is in Death Race 2000. That's Roger Deakins' air right there. That's not... It's, you're not even dicking around. Corman's really good at finding interesting, talented people and telling them, I don't care what you do. Here's a check. <laughs> the worst case scenario, you fuck up and we don't make another one of these. If you don't fuck up, though, maybe we'll make another one. And that's why he's found some, you know, diamonds in the rough. It's not that Corman's that good, it's that Corman's that bad. And so... <laughs> All right, there's no avoiding it now. Let's engulf ourselves into Death Race 2000. I definitely want to try to visualize what this society must be purely based on this point system. They never say it. But we got to assume there's some kind of overpopulation problem, right? Like, otherwise, why, why is it desirable to kill certain people? All right, new beans. We'll listen to your plan. Clearly, running over the elderly is the most points, so they definitely want to get rid of, in a, in a, in a fascist sense, useless eaters, right? Topic all. But no, it, it's very strange that, like teenagers and babies are like like that's the thing that i can't get my head around is what the purpose of that would be i mean sure a baby isn't incredibly useful but i guess they must have overpopulation to the point where even losing a baby's not too bad i guess right they've got too many mouths to feed all right hey, every penny counts the idea that women are worth more points i think that says less about this particular society, which all things being equal, at least in this road race, is pretty egalitarian. Yeah, surprisingly so. I mean, everything else about society is horrific, but... The road race shows women can be horrible vehicular murderers as much as any man, so... You know, maybe it's just supposed to explain to us that misogyny still rules. I, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty clumsy and pretty mixed about his social commentary. Right. I, I, I feel like it's more about the misogyny of the 70s than it is about the misogyny of this far-off future of the year 2000. Of the year 2000! Yes. <laughs> yeah. Although, it does have the nakedest scene <laughs> in movie history. This is something that I, I, I do think is interesting. One of the things that it 
perhaps is trying to satirize, but perhaps was not, is sexuality in this science fiction world, because they are just having weird interviews with all of the racers while they sit naked getting massage. And you know what it made me think of more than anything else was the the shower scene from Starship Troopers. Uh-huh. No, same thing. It's a world that is desensitized to sex and nudity. They just don't care anymore. Uh, but it's also clearly Roger Corman being a creep and wanting boobs in his movie. <laughs> I, how do I... It's it's chastely pervy. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I live in 2020. Hardcore pornography is everywhere and morality is dead. And, and yeah, you feel a little skeeved out by it because everyone just seems so naked. <laughs> I can't explain it in any other way. You're stuck looking at this and you're just like, okay, I've been on a movie set. I know what the... Oh, God, that's a lot. There's so many people there. Why are those people so naked? <laughs> Those people are very naked. Why is Sylvester Stallone naked? Why? Oh, yeah. I, it turns out I'm uncomfortable with naked Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone does not have a sexuality that I am comfortable with. And this version of Sylvester Stallone, that's upsetting. That's, I don't, I don't. Sylvester Stallone is a, is, is, is a eunuch mm. as far as I am concerned. <laughs> and I am not comfortable with the idea of giving, of granting him any sexual autonomy. Well, the TV show Big Mouth would lead me to believe that there is a porno movie out there in the universe that you should not see. Uh, yeah, he made porn. Yeah. He made, uh, well, uh, he wasn't in the porn, though. Oh, okay. Well, hooray. Like, he was in the porn, but he wasn't one of the porn actors. He was basically an extra in porn. Was he, like, delivering the pizza? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, fine. I think, he's, I think he's a waiter. I don't... <laughs> no, but, you know, you, you raise a good point. While the characters are not titillated by the nudity or even interested in any way. We, the audience, are theoretically meant to be, and that is a, a kind of disconcerting feeling. 20-plus years later, Paul Verhoeven would do that specifically to be satirical, but, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right now, it's it's accidental at best. They're reaching for stuff that you would that people wouldn't be doing in mainstream films for another 10 years, mm -hmm. because uh, in that scene, he is trying, or at least Paul Bartel, is trying to do exactly what we are describing. Oh, people are desensitized to sexuality and nudity. It's just, it just kind of mm -hmm. is happening in the background. It is what it is. He's just failing at it. Right. Just failing at it utterly because everybody, first of all, because because everyone is so heavily sexualized to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, because every driver has a navigator of the opposite sex. Oh, what the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? I didn't even understand it until it was happening. And then I was like, what? Uh, wait, did I miss this earlier? Yeah, and you no, know, your, your navigator is just someone you're supposed to be having sex with. That's just their purpose. In addition to helping you find people to kill, like that's their their goal. I don't know. It is not saying anything about sex and sexuality in any way, and so it does feel a little worse, right? Yeah, it's just the sloppiest. Mm -hmm. I did not like Death Race 2000, and I should have liked Death Race 2000. And it's because even when I start enjoying something failing... Something makes me actively... Un like, I was uncomfortable for the actors. I was like, this is gross. This is gross what you're doing, Mr. Corman. And that's one of the things that's very, very tricky with this movie. For a movie that is theoretically about oppression and rebellion, at least in some 
points so, like like that seems to make that a major plot point because the movie itself is so apolitical we really don't understand other than the road race what is so terrible about this horrible government and what is so great about this resistance that's trying to bring it down we just have no information about it really there is a rebellion a rebellion against the bad thing mm-hmm. i assume or Trying to tear down the good thing. I'm not sure. You, you put a clenched fist and a lightning bolt in your insignia, it, it makes you look like you're probably fascist. That's yeah, fair. Are we the baddies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's got major <laughs> are we the baddies feel. The, the president has a summer palace in Moscow now where he rules from. Mr. President. Mr. President. <laughs> Jeez, how disrespectful of me. There was the world crash of 79. We know that occurred. And afterwards came a new generation of the United Provinces of America and minority privilege, which I don't know what that means exactly. It is very, very vague about what minority privilege means. There is now the bipartisan party. There is no Republicans or Democrats. It's a quasi-religious institution. And when there is terrorist activity, the government tries to pretend it's not happening. This is the sum total of what we know about Mr. President and his new world order. That's all we know. For five Meow Meow Beans. (laughs) There is kind of a plot, and I think we can get through it in ten minutes tops. I don't think we need to spend any more time more than this. There are five racers. These racers are trying to kill people for points and also race from Manhattan to New Los Angeles across the country. There is a resistance to this possibly quasi-fascist government, and to the car race it endorses. Not the mass race. Not not the mass race. It doesn't... Which is women. (laughs) So there is a resistance against this. The resistance have a plan. Well, they have two plans. They have two competing plans because there are different wings of the resistance. There is Thomasina Payne, who has a plan to kidnap Frankenstein and then get concessions from Mr. President to end the race. And then there is her subordinate, Lieutenant Fury, who has a silly Sipowitz mustache. He does. And his plan is just to murder everyone in the race. He is he is more of the violent extremist wing of the resistance. And so, one by one... Uh, Lieutenant Fury does so until all that is left is is Frankenstein. Frankenstein arrives at the race, wins the race, and then is able to kill the president. And doing so makes him the most beloved man in America, and he becomes the new president. That's the movie. That's all the movie. There's no other pieces to it. Because he has been racing exclusively so he could kill the president. I have one first question. Please, please, lay it out. In theory, he has met the president two times before. I am not clear that David Carradine, right, the character we're seeing in this film, has ever met the president. Frankenstein. Frankenstein has. Ah. But what David Carradine reveals to Annie, his, his navigator, and that's a whole relationship we have to talk about in a second, what he reveals is that there are many, many Frankensteins that are trained in a government facility, and when you use one up, you just get a new one. You get a new Frankenstein. And each of these Frankensteins is 
you know, bred and raised to be the best racer that he possibly can be. And David Carradine has decided he will be the last of the Frankensteins. He's going to break the cycle. I watched this movie yesterday. Yep. I watched this movie dead sober. Yep. I watched this movie in the middle of the day. It's a choice. I did not understand the thing you just said. Uh, I don't know how I didn't understand the thing you just said. But I think it's because this movie sucks. (laughs) I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why you didn't get it. It's because it was exposition that was tied into a very uncomfortable sex scene that I imagine you were trying to avoid watching. It was in that thing. Uh Uh-huh. The worst sex scene in the history of ever. So, Ugh. It, it's time. It's time to talk about about Annie. So, Annie is his new navigator. Frankenstein has never met Annie before, but she is a mole from Thomasina Paine's resistance. In fact, she is her great-granddaughter, and she is part of the plan to capture Frankenstein and then use him as, as trade bait with Mr. President. They begin a relationship that quickly becomes sexual, and I don't understand any of it, and it feels very wrong every step of the way. Well, I understand in the room Mm -hmm. that she is growing attached to Frankenstein's worldview at the same time as she is attempting to finish her mission. Mm Mm-hmm. On the page, it may have been like that. On film, it is not like that under any circumstances whatsoever. It is such a complicated thing to say that this woman both is is trying to use this guy and has a form of Stockholm Syndrome and might be falling in love with him, but is also willing to kill him. That's a lot of different directions for one person to get pulled. And this character is not written well enough to make that make sense at all. And he seems to have some sympathy for her mission, even while he laughs at it a little bit. Like, he th- he does think it's funny that the Resistance is trying to kill him and all the other drivers. Well, he's, again, he's got a plan, and she's going to be able to work for his plan, mm-hmm. which is peculiar. It is. But it's just lucky. Yeah. Like, he's just kind of like, you know what, this doesn't change my shit, but... <laughs> They deliver a ton of exposition while they dance, she's naked, and he's in weird underwear. Oh, God, that was, that's, this whole scene is weird, Ben. <laughs> Which, again, is why I, do, I think you didn't hear <laughs> when, when he gave important exposition about his past. In retrospect, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the thing that is most important for this movie, that they just don't really explain it all, is what Frankenstein believes. I I just, I don't understand what his ethos is. I don't understand why it would be attractive. And that is important in your main character. I need to know why he's doing the things he's doing. Now, I kind of like the idea of hiding it for a long time. I like, I like a reveal later, but that reveal just never comes other than the fact that he is 100% planning to kill Mr. President. Even then, we don't entirely understand why. I mean, I sort of got the vibe that he wouldn't have to be Frankenstein anymore, Mm. 
But again, I didn't realize there were dozens of Frankensteins, so it makes even less sense. (laughs) Okay, let's try to piece it together, and you tell me if from these pieces if there's anything that you can follow. When he is given the option to run over a bunch of old people on Euthanasia Day, he instead runs over the doctors. He doesn't care about the resistance and thinks that their methods are a joke. He says winning is the only standard of excellence left. That seems to be the one statement he makes about an authoritative belief. When the gossip columnist uh, of this movie questions him about what it's like to run someone over, he says, stand in the middle of Route 66 tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, and you can answer that question for yourself. So he seems to be implying that although he does this, the fact that others would take joy in that is a problem. But it's not his problem, it's their problem. That's a problem with them. Yeah, no, 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 no. You, it's, it's just, it, it, it's, the ethos isn't, uh, he doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. It's beneath him. He's, uh, he's a samurai. <laughs> but when a fan comes to give herself to Frankenstein, she, she comes, she meets him, he thinks it's some kind of sexual thing at first, or maybe even like a political assassination thing, but then she just reveals that she is part of a, a, a Frankenstein fan group And she wants her death to be more meaningful because she has met him and he knows her. And then, you know, she walks out into the middle of the road and he runs her down. He accepts. He's like, okay, fine. So I don't know how that matches with the other part of him that seems to have disdain for the killing. Oh, he has disdain for the, I I, I got, I got the idea that it was the. The generalized killing, mm-hmm. not 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 individually. Individually, he's fine. I mean, he's a murderer. <laughs> like he drops his glove, he goes around in a big circle to pick up his glove, and while he's doing that, he runs over the deacon of the bipartisan party. Is this a political statement? Is he just doing it because it's fun? Like we don't know. We don't know what he's trying to tell anybody. He's the fucking Joker. Yeah, he just <laughs> doesn't care. He, he he doesn't seem to have any particular beliefs about anything, except. At the very end, he reveals, he takes off the glove that has been on his hand the entire movie and reveals that there is a grenade embedded in his hand. He has a hand grenade, and he intends to blow up the president with it. Fucking hand grenade. (laughs) love how stupid it is. It's so stupid. (laughs) But that's the thing, that now we've really hit all the things that just don't work. I give you them all. I'd like to make it clear. Mm-hmm. I was not amused by this movie. <laughs> this movie brought me no joy. And I- this is the only part of this movie that has brought me any joy, is, dis- is being able to tell somebody, this movie brought me no joy. This movie brought me no joy. Because I grant you all these things. <laughs> I grant you every single one of them, and I'm not going to complain about it. You know, There is... Just a couple things, though, that I do believe are positive about this movie. Now, you might not like them. You might say, those are not enough for me, and I will... I will. I might have just been blind to everything else, but go ahead. All right. <laughs> give, me, give me your highlights. <laughs> this movie... I like the cards. As opposed to, say, a Godzilla Final Wars, the action in this movie is very real. Yeah, it feels super George Miller uh-huh. now. And, and yeah, those driving scenes are awesome. They they are. They're again, if they're not enough to prop up all the other stuff, completely understand. 
but the fact that there are these absurd cars that look like bulls or Frankenstein's is a dragon for some reason. Machine gun Joe Viterbo has literal machine guns and then a, a giant Rambo knife, like just a, just a combat knife on the front that is clearly made of plastic. So it's it's incredibly funny when Frankenstein like holds him up to this fake plastic knife, like, I'm going to cut you with the knife on your car. But they look so silly and yet, the the driving is very visceral. The the crashes are awesome. The explosions are enjoyable. Well, and knowing it's a Tak Fujimoto mm. film now, yeah. like I'm not. I, I kind of want to watch it again with that lens because I did say. I mean, watching it, I was like, eh, these are gorgeous shots. But honestly, especially when we're looking at this stuff, especially when we're watching like late seventies cheap, there's so much good cinematography because we, we're just we're in those last years of fifty years of technological learning and no innovations. Everything between 1978 and 1985 is shot perfectly. This is a question I, I do have for you. Is is that the case, or is it just that there were hundreds of terrible films, and then the five that were beautiful have just floated down the generations? Also true. Also true. It was harder to shoot a film mm -hmm. that slowed people down. Right. Photographically, if nothing else. You had to do stuff so, so that the camera could even see that there were people. Mm -hmm. You had to do makeup and reflectors and all sorts of weird shit. Now you really can just kind of point an iPhone 12 at someone and you'll get something that's almost a movie. So, yeah, I think people were a little more deliberate. But, yeah, I also think that there's a lot of absolute trash. But every time some, every time good trash floats to the top, you realize the bar was just higher photographically at the time. It's because you just had to put stuff on celluloid. It was harder. It was more expensive. So you'd hire a guy who knew how to do it. And, you know, I think, I think this raises a good comparison because there have been many 2000s remakes of Death Race. And then three years ago, there was a direct sequel made to this movie called Death Race 2050, which I enjoyed one third of it. But that third is basically they made this movie again, but with social media. Like, the idea of social media was part of it. And that was vaguely interesting. But then we get to the thing you're talking about. All the racing parts were so ugly, were so digitized and, and disgusting. It's just like, no, this doesn't look good at all. Yeah, this is not a movie that I would think to have a direct sequel to unless you went in an entirely different direction. Unless you decided to just explore the universe around it and be mm -hmm. like, hey, you saw the death race and how that none of this world made any sense. Well, here's some bald people in robes to tell you what's happening. I, I Honestly, I really needed a, some bald people in robes. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I needed the scene underground with the mutants in... The second Planet of the Apes movie. I just needed some weirdos in robes to tell me what was happening, and I might have been okay. <laughs> I would have liked this less if they actually tried to square the circle of all the things that, that they discuss that don't work. Like, I like it better now that they don't work. No, no, no. That it doesn't fit is the beauty of it for me. And that's strange. I don't know why, and I don't know that you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong at all. I think you're quite correct. It's just, 
I have been able to build something for this movie in my mind where it's just the only funny thing is that they have the shape of saying something, but they're not saying anything. And that is funny to me. That is funny to me. I like some of the kills. I think some of the kills are amusing. I mean, they're fun. It's just... Let let, let me me just throw you one. Let me throw you one. The chicken gang. The three greasers who... Two of whom are very old, and one of which oddly young, who stand by an open manhole... What kind of as as the drivers come, they jump into the manhole to hide, except they cover the manhole so the last one can't get in, he gets run down. And then they stick their heads back up and then they get run over by machine gun Joe. Like I that's absurd. And it's it's very silly. You're you're not wrong. No, I mean I I I, I think I wanted this movie to be the running man or the apple. And it was neither of those things. Yeah, no, I just think it's a bad parody. I think exactly what you think it's trying to do, it's trying to do. It's bad at it. Also, in the 70s, that sort of playing with parody happened all the goddamn time. And well through the 80s, happened with the excuse that they couldn't make it any better. And I think that's a that's a Roger Corman excuse because it's parody. No, you just still want to get the the racing scenes up there and you want to get the kills up on the screen, but you want to get the boobies. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And he's he's infusing it with it's it's like the articles in Playboy. There are two pieces of satire that we haven't discussed that I think come closest to working. The media satire actually holds up, I think, quite well. Intercut with all this action are three members of the media. There is Junior Bruce. He's he's the color commentator. He wears a, a scarf and gigantic raspberry sunglasses, and he's ghoulishly excited by vehicular homicide. There is Grace Pander, she is the gossip columnist, and she's constantly interviewing the racers and uh, uh, introducing everyone she meets as a very dear friend of mine. Uh, she is the one who sits down with the, the wife of the first man to get run over and to offer her a, a new apartment in Acapulco and a new 3D TV. And the wife is both, you know, traumatized, but also a little happy to get that apartment in a TV. And then there's is just a Howard Cassell imitator named Harold who delivers the the play by play with a, a detachment. I will say I I love Don Steele in this movie. Okay, there's another. There, that is another highlight. I love Don Steele in this movie. And Don Steele was he Junior Bruce? Uh, yeah, Bruce, Junior Bruce. He's one of the rare DJs famous enough to be famous mm. for being a DJ. You know, he was like an LA guy. I think all the way back to the '60s, honestly. But he's like he, he is prominent here, and I know him exclusively from cameos he made in movies in the. In the 70s and 80s. Like, that's why I know of him. And here, he is absolutely not playing himself. And that is why it is a blast. He is he is in on the satire in a big way with this guy. Because normally he just shows up. And you can tell it in his voice. You can, you know, you can hear it. You can see mm-hmm. 
his bearing. Normally, when he's doing a cameo, he's just being himself because he was, you know, the famous L.A. DJ. Mm-hmm. The end. And here, he is playing a part. One, one of the things that it can't help but fail in comparison to is the movie Rollerball, which, again, this was designed to be direct competition with, right? This is the... Uh, Armageddon to its... <laughs> Deep impact. <laughs> so, Rollerball is a better sci-fi world. It's... I think it has more to say than this movie does. It is more interesting. Its its lead character is is actually an actor, uh, other than rather than David Carradine. We will watch Rollerball after this, for sure. Okay. 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 Yeah, yeah. No. We gotta. We gotta hit rollerball. We we will talk. We will talk about rollerball in the future. I promise, because you know it, it is worth talking about. Ooh, 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 ooh! We've never developed one of these on live, 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 live. You know what we do? What's that? Rollerball and Nation. James Conathon. Oh, Conathon! 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 All right, done. All right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But here's the one thing that this movie has that that Rollerball doesn't. It's that this movie posits a media that will one day become just as bloodthirsty and desensitized to the violence occurring in the world around it, they report, and and in ways particularly gleeful about it. I, I get what you're saying. It's just the same thing I see with, like, when people talk about, like, network or being there. I think that comment that works. And it's tough to remember that this is like 1974. I mean, when's Network? No. That's 78, maybe? In 76, it's right after this. Yeah, this is some bootleg social commentary that they're hearing from smarter people up there and dumber people down there, and they just got it on screen mm-hmm. first because it was real easy to make this movie. <laughs> so let's just get to the end. Uh, in the end... Annie joins forces with Frankenstein to kill the president. They have used up their hand grenade, blowing up machine gun Joe Viterbo. So Frankenstein no longer has that to kill Mr. President with. So the plan that they concoct is that Annie will go up on stage dressed like Frankenstein. I don't know. I don't think it was part of the plan, but... Thomasina Payne, her great-grandmother, is in the audience, and she thinks that Annie's dead, so she tries to assassinate Frankenstein. I think that's the plan going wrong. See, I assumed that was the plan going right. (laughs) I'm unsure. Okay, keep going. (laughs) In the chaos, naked Frankenstein rams his car into the stage killing Mr. President somehow. Although it cannot be more than a two-foot drop, and there's nothing actually making contact with Mr. President in any way, so I am unsure how this killed him. But okay. And then, having killed Mr. President, now now Frankenstein is the new president. And and he and Annie are getting married. And he has he has some some policies. He's going to get rid of the secret police. He's going to restore free elections, end minority privilege, whatever that is. Make new Los Angeles the capital. And Thomasina Paine is his minister for domestic security. Most of all, he abolishes the race 
Junior Bruce is incredibly angry about this. He says, President Frankenstein, you can't, you can't call off the race. The American people won't stand for it. The race is the symbol of everything we hold dear. Our American way of life, sure, it's violent, but that's the way we love it. Violent, violent, violent. And that's why we love you. And then Frankenstein runs him over to much applause. Off screen. <laughs> Leaving only the scarf behind. That the Howard Cassell imitator picks up. So, Borsier... What I guess I'm trying to say is, what did you learn about violence in society? What did Death Race 2000 teach you? That we should have thought of the Purge movies first. <laughs> I would watch a 1970s Purge. You know? <laughs> Come on, in the style of the Warriors? Fuck it. Let's make that movie. <laughs> Let's go back in time. Let's do it. Let's get it done. No, 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 we make the movie called The Purge 1978. Oh. Can we make it a a prequel to Wonder Woman 84? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I assumed we would. I mean, I... No, but I just think Death Race 2000, Wonder Woman 84, Purge 78. I think it's the perfect trilogy. I think it all goes together. No, 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 no. It would be like, uh, it'd be like that, uh, that Dawn of the Dead trilogy. That isn't a trilogy, mm -hmm. and everyone's confused by. It might have five movies, or might have two. <laughs> so, Borsier, you despise this film? I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it! <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. Because <laughs> I, I do genuinely enjoy it. And I love David Carradine. I love him unapologetically and unironically. And this movie is a pile of shit. David Carradine dressed... In a PVC costume with a Darth Vader-style cape facing off against Rocky Balboa would be enough to make almost any movie break my top 50. Almost any movie, they fucked it up. Which people shouldn't watch. It's a piece of shit, but it's my piece of shit. That's all I'm saying. All right, I understand. I've seen your Honda. So, Borsier, you got any plugs? Hey, I'll plug a book. And it's been sitting on my shelf for like three years, and I finally started it, and then I just burned through it. I will say, Neil Gaiman's Norse Mythology. Oh, yeah. It is very different than his other stuff. And because of that, I had a couple of, I had a couple of false starts with it, mm -hmm. where I'd make it through Odin, and then I'd go, eh, whatever. But no, it was fantastic. It's, uh, it's the best of Neil Gaiman without the darkness. And that's okay. I don't know. I feel like it's not a lighter read. It's a more optimistic read than he usually presents. I, I understand this, if only because when – it is a weird thing that I haven't thought about in a very long time. But when I was a teen, I would, I would be like – I would sit alone at lunch and I would read Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. I would just read her, her Greek mythology text and I really liked – the stories and the way it introduced these gods as though they could be like organized and, and had a timeline and, and Neil Gaiman really did that in Norse mythology. Yeah, exactly. He just, I'm like, Oh, I just didn't know what this book was before. Mm -hmm. And now I do. <laughs> nah, it's the exact thing that, that teen Ben would have wanted to read. Hey, you got any plugs there, boss? <laughs> ah, Something I did when uh, I, I started college is I made the conscious decision, I'm just going to read all of Kurt Vonnegut. I'm just going to start the – I'm just going to – 
go all the way to the end. And it's been a long time, and I've started to do that again. And so let's plug Vonnegut. I love love him. You go Slaughterhouse Five on down, all the way at the beginning, all the way at the beginning. Okay. Player piano, and so from two of the bungled to all our botched friends out there, we love you. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that that stays in. Oh, 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 I'm leaving in Conathon. <laughs> okay. That that just yeah, happened spontaneously, yeah, yeah. and I love it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The world aligned.